The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good day to everybody out there. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And folks, you got two days. Yep, two days. December 21st. 2012, which is now being issued as the end of days. So as we record this program, uh, I don't know to what posterity we'll leave it to, but certainly uh, you got two days. I don't know what you're going to do in those two days, but after that, you sort of have to pack it in because it's all it's, it's all going away. Um, if you believe that, then there's a bridge I can sell you in Brooklyn, New York, Um it's one of the, the topics that I want to talk about today is how these very popular concepts deriving from the world of archaeology, how they get circulated and how they spread and what the baseline and background is to some of these things. And, and, and I guess the easiest way we can talk about this uh, is, is, is if you remember when you were really young and again i i'm not that young but uh in my day we used to play this game called telephone and a bunch of kids would sort of stand in a line or in a circle and um they would get a message from a teacher or someone like that and the message went around the room whispered from one child to the next child and by the time you reached the 15th child the message was completely different from what it originally had been because every child essentially, even subconsciously, puts his own spin on the message. And they pick out the words that, that strike them. And then all of a sudden, um, you get some kind of a sensational kind of message at the end of, at the end of this row or the end of this line that has absolutely nothing to do with the original message. And, and this is basically what happens in a lot of these cult kind of interpretations and a lot of these fantasy types of interpretations that uh, emanate from um, from popular culture and start out really from a scientific basis, but by the time you filter out the cultural filters, if you will, then you're getting a distorted message 
that has really very little to do with what was originally laid out in scientific methodology and inside a scientific transmission and, and taught in classrooms. So uh, let's use this sort of as a popular means and popular example, if you will, to understand what's really going on here and what is the end of days and what are we talking about. Uh, again, keep in mind what I just said. People pick up snippets, snippets, headlines uh, from a complex message. And the complexity, I think, in this particular case is that the Mayans uh, were a very, very sophisticated people. They had writing, and they had an inordinately strong sense of astronomy. And what that means is that they were much more complicated and much more intricate in terms of their scientific capabilities and functions than we gave them, we give them credit for. Now, let's backtrack all of this through time and talk about uh, where they came from. As, as many of you know, and some of you don't, probably, the Mayans are a still viable people. Um, they have obviously intermarried a lot in Mexico, um, but they were a unique people in the southeastern part of Mexico and Guatemala. Uh, the largest probable, and again, I'm not a Mayan expert, but the largest concentration of Mayan, uh, culture, of, of, of Mayan population and demog demog demographics is in the Yucatan, which is the tropical area of southeastern, um, of eastern Mexico. And the Mayans were a very, very advanced culture, and one of their achievements was their recognition of cycles, life cycles, and uh, even death cycles and growth cycles. And what they did, as, as many Europeans also did, was that they structured time in, in a series of cycles that were based on complex relationships um, involving growing seasons, human cycles, um, of course, lunar cycles, solar cycles, the, uh, the types of things that most of us are familiar with. But they had, it turns out, a much more intricate set of embedded cycles. In other words, cycles within cycles. The concept of time was by and large linear until events started to repeat themselves. And when they repeated themselves, they repeated themselves in patterns. And when those patterns became very clear, they were cycles. And what the Mayans did, and again, this is not my primary area of expertise, but I know a little bit about it, is that they tended to relate and bond various cyclical episodes into increasingly larger cycles. And so what happens is that you have cycles of uh, months, let's say, for example, a pregnancy and a birth. That would be a cycle of months. And then you would be cycles of years, which would uh, equate to, say, a human lifespan. And then they would expand and expand into greater cycles. So to boil it down, to boil this situation down into into this entire intricate series of cycles, and I can't get into all of them because there are many diverse ones. There are some that are related to others, and there is an entire science of, of Mayan iconography and Mayan archaeology that uh, is an, an epigraphy that is related to working out these cycles and these calendars and how they are integrated. Uh, people think 
uh, major archaeologists who work in Mesoamerica are at the point where I think they're starting to get resolution on what the what the nature of this embedding of the cycles is. Uh, for the longest time, we had bits and pieces of these cycles that were documented, and they were documented um, because there is a calendar, and because the Spanish, when they conquered um, Mexico and Mesoamerica in the 16th century, communicated with the Mayans before they effectively wiped them out. And there was exquisite documentation, and there's an excellent history, a, a series of excellent histories by the Spanish explorers that document their interactions with the Mayans and with Mesoamerican populations elsewhere. Most of you probably know that uh, south of the United States, there were a number of major civilizations. There were the Mayans, there were the Aztecs in Mexico, in central Mexico, and there were, of course, the Incas in Peru, and those are the most famous civilizations. But, but, this is not to negate the contributions of people and groups and tribes and villages and cities and states in Mesoamerica um, that were not quite as extensive as the Mayan culture or not quite as extensive as the Aztecs. And we're, we're going back to, uh, for, uh, to organized communities that extended at least uh, 8,000 years ago uh, in an organized framework of sorts. And in many cases, they interacted with each other. And I guess the uh, fourth point of all of this is that in, ex in addition to exchanging concepts and ideas, they exchanged notions of time and cycles. And uh, the contemporary thoughts are, uh, and again, based on good archaeological evidence, is that uh, there was a lot of communication between the smaller communities and the larger communities. In some cases, um, because of human organization and because of village organizations and settlement complexes, they became parts of what you could call a similar, uh, the same society. In other cases, they weren't. But the fact of the matter is that there was interaction. And the nature of that interaction could have been... Um, based on whatever socioeconomic relationships existed at a particular place in time. In many cases, this is governed by physical geography. In other places, it's, it, it's, it's governed by linguistics and, and language interchanges and similarities in language and the ability to communicate. So what I'm saying here is that this calendar um, was probably an oral calendar, and the Mayans sort of turned it into something that was documented, and their glyphs indicate that. And certainly by the time the conquistadors came into Mexico and into, uh, into Central America and then into South America, um, they proceeded to document this in grand detail. And the explorers, which you have all learned about when you were in high school, I guess, um, the explorers are the people who consumed this information and put it down and spread it into Europe and, and, uh, effectually helped to, to codify the initial explanations of how this calendar was organized. But of course, the Maya had their own language and their own, uh, codification. And they also obviously documented their own cyclical, uh, system in, in exquisite detail, but it, it was reasonably well understood, um, by the Spanish, uh, by the time, um, their settlements uh, began to overrun the indigenous populations 
of South and Central America. So the baselines for these calendars were established, and and um, there were, of course, a lot of holes because, as I said, there are so many interweaving cycles that to break them apart would uh, would be a real challenge to filter out which ones were part of one system and which ones were part of another system uh, is, is sort of a very difficult thing to do and certainly something that would require a specialization in, uh, in Mayan epigraphy and uh, Mayan studies. But the fact of the matter is that in general, um, it is possible to link together a number of these longer-term cycles. And I, I guess the... the uh, uh, the, the the critical element and the critical cycle for this this 2012 stuff, if you want to call it that, and is, is that the, the 2012 is marks a turning point in what's called the Great Cycle, and the Great Cycle, as per its name, is a cycle that really is the one that is the, if you will, chief unifying principles of this entire calendrical system. And uh, because it's the great cycle, so that's the one that jumps to the top, and that's the one that uh, people and, and, and popular culture sort of, sort of tends to uh, bolt into the forefront and starts to attach and assign significance to it that probably had very little to do with what the Mayan were actually thinking and what those populations were actually doing. And uh, we will get back uh, to you in a few minutes after uh, in a few minutes after we take this break, and I will talk just a little bit more about the Mayan cycles, and then we'll move on to some other issues that are related to the popularization of archaeology, and to the use and abuse of archaeology, both in the general population and in the media. And we'll be back after these words. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with hosts Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. 
A new view of life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. I was talking about a number of issues related to the popularization and, if you will, sort of the, uh, I don't know, expropriation of archaeology for popular culture, if you wish. And um, what I was talking about was the topic of the day, which is uh, the popular notion amongst many people, and many of whom take this stuff very seriously, is that we're going to be gone in two days because that's the end of days according to the Mayan calendar, and the Mayan calendar is never wrong. And what I was discussing is I was uh, indicating that the selective or cherry-picking of this information by the popular culture is what results in these very, very broad-brush interpretations that are somewhat grounded in fact, but are basically sort of mangled once once they reach once they reach public distribution. And and uh, again, a lot of a lot of this is a function of what media does. I mean, media is is uh, and I have nothing against media, but we have so many outlets right now social networking in, in addition to the traditional sources of media that the messages get so confounded and anybody with a computer uh, can print something out and, and distribute it and all of a sudden it becomes fact and, and my earlier analogy was that when you expropriate science and you uh, spread it out to the popular culture um, it often loses its meaning and, and people as as they tend to do, they tend to cherry pick and to to pick out the headlines and to just look at the headlines without really reading the story. In the case of science, science is hard in many cases. It's difficult to absorb. It's it requires a certain amount of very very intense processing of information. And for you to draw interpretations from science, you have to be pretty thorough. But most people, you know, they read things and they're fascinated. Archaeology is certainly a fascinating science. And and they read about ancient cultures and they visualize and they extract the headlines from the from the scientific journals and, and from the popular scientific journals. And they come up with these elaborate scenarios because uh, in many cases, as, as one of my colleagues said, it's a cash cow. They're make, a lot of people are making a lot of money by disseminating all this false information on the end of days on December 21st. But that said, uh, what I discussed earlier is that really what this is about is a very complex and intricate um, Mayan concepts of time, and those concepts of time are organized around life cycles. And those life cycles are very, very intricate and inter- interwoven with each other. And uh, as a result, Mayanists, who are a group of professional archaeologists, have been wrestling with what the significance of the various cycles are. And ultimately, they come up, they have come up with 
the notion that these cycles are nested. They're integrated, they're nested, and they're related to each other. And ultimately, there is a method to this cyclical organization, and each cycle feeds upon the next cycle and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the idea of December 21st, 2012, is it is formally called the Great Cycle. So for popular culture, it means, well, that's it. That's time. That's how it goes. We know that the Maya were accurate in most things that they did, so the Great Cycle must mean something. So just a little bit more information about the great cycle and I'm going to give you one of the cycles that it's clearly related to which is called the long count now the long count uh, is a cycle of 52 years and that goes back to the time that um, the Mayan themselves believed that the world uh, was effectively created and that is based on again Gregorian calendars and projections and again Keep in mind that the Spanish in the 16th century um, communicated with the Mayan, and they were they 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 got this information, got a lot of this information, and they were uh, obviously also calendar focused, and they were able to establish when the Mayan calendar uh, was was uh, based and dated it backwards retroactively to 3114 BC in the Gregorian calendar. So. That is a baseline date for the Mayan. I mean, it's like the equivalent of uh, whatever it is, 5800 or 5972 in the the Jewish calendar, approximately 6,000 years. And um, based on that, they started to look at what's called the long count, which was the the next largest um, life cycle, and that was for 52 years. Now, because there were so many different turning points, there were sets of 52 uh, 52 years that were worked into the cyclical network of the Mayan calendar. And as a result of that, uh, there was a great cycle whose specifics you would have to really be, um, you'd really have to be grounded in uh, trying to weave all these cycles together, as many Mayanists are, but it's a specialty that only you know a couple hundred people, or maybe less than that actually, in the world can do. And it turns out that these great cycles last approximately 2,760 years, depending on how those numbers are uh, are integrated. And the primary structural base of that is the 52-year uh, long count cycle. Uh, which is 18,980 days. So using all that information and integrating all this data, you come out with the date of, uh, of December 21st, 2012. And again, not wanting to overwork anybody with all these details. It's the, uh, the, 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 uh, long count cycles are grouped into five units and the conversions of those units will eventually come to give you this approximate 2,760 or 2,800 year great cycle. So this December 21st, two days from now, is when the great cycle occurs. Now, as to whether or not there's a cataclysm there, that, according to most Mayanists that I know, that's a fabrication, and that really is the end of the line from the telephone game that I was talking about 
um, earlier when somebody, probably somebody influential, had heard this from possibly 20 different quasi-experts people and filtered out whatever they thought was was appropriate to filter out. And they said, well, the end of the world is uh, 2012. And the bottom line is the great cycle ends on 2012. And the next one after that, assuming that we live through it, is going to be October 13th, 4772. So if we make it through this one, we'll see you in, on October 13th, 4772, and we'll have this discussion again, although by that time, my assumption is that we will know all the intricate details of all the cycles, and we will be able to synthesize this information together and we will be able to look at how uh, cycles from various cultures will have been interweaved and, and possibly these may have crossed oceans. I'm just kidding, of course, but in, in point of fact, science does jump ahead exponentially because of the acquisition of, of, of knowledge, new technologies, and our ability to integrate old technologies with the new technologies that we have right now. And as a result of that, I mean, the people who do the glyphs and the people who do the Mayan calendar over the past 10 years, their understanding has has catapulted. They've been able to reconstruct tremendous amounts of information uh, based on um, what technology is giving them. For example, they are now able to read uh, stela, which is monuments that previously they couldn't read because they got more information to fill in the gaps, if you will, plus the preservation of those glyphs in the tropical environments has improved very significantly so that they're able to peel away um, erosional elements of the glyphs themselves to to read more because a lot of these uh, glyphs have been exposed for a long time and since they're carved into stone the edges the edges erode away and it's impossible to figure out what they're saying but now we have preserve preservatives that would allow you to clean up these stela and in some cases to clean away debris that couldn't be cleaned up before and to be able to uh, read more glyphs and to understand more information and then you take existing tablets and get that information as well and then you have your, your what you're what you're doing is you're integrating the new information with the old and all of a sudden all these vistas open up to you and you can read more so when you have more source materials you get a much better understanding and you don't have to scratch your head around and just try to put together two pieces of information when you now have five and so your ability to assemble this information into some kind of a comprehensive perspective is enhanced by that and um that's that's what science really does and and it's painstaking and it takes a lot of time and once you actually figure out a new technique or a new method or a new strategy then your knowledge base increases five tenfold because you can apply it to a variety of different situations um and we've talked about this in previous programs that um the advent of new technologies and, and the ability to to read more information and to decipher more languages um that that were of of, of ancient civilizations once you you figure out the keys to that then you've put together a tremendous amount of information. Uh, one area in which I work extensively where we still don't have that is in the, uh, is in, in, uh, Pakistan in the Indus Valley culture, which was very much on a plane with, uh, Egypt, Mesopotamia, and in the New World, the Aztecs, the Incas, and the Mayans, and we still haven't worked out 
um, that writing, although it does exist. The writing is very clear, and we still have, we still don't know what it means. And, and and people are working on it. My colleagues have been working on it for years, and I suspect that within the next decade, that too will be deciphered, and uh, hopefully, um, we'll have a lot more information on the interaction between the Indus civilization and um, and Mesoamer- Mes- uh, Mesopotamia. Uh, what that was about. But that's another topic for another time. We'll take another break. And then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the media and this entire concept of popularization of, of science and, and what it does and how it happens and, and where it goes. And uh, we'll even take it back to biblical times. And we've discussed that before, but keep your hat on. We're coming back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. On America's front lines of crime and war with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back, and uh, we spent the first two segments discussing the end of days and the anticipation and belief of a lot of people that your world and everybody's world will end on the 21st of December 
in two days. And uh, for those of you who are just tuning in or who missed the early part of it, uh, what I was talking about was that they um, effectively, the Maya calendar is organized into a series of cycles. And long story short, December 21st, 2012 is the end of a great cycle in the series of cycles that the Mayans were able to integrate in their uh, temporal system or the chronolog- chronological system of time. And uh, that's it. It's the end of the great cycle. No more, no less. A new cycle will start. Whether or not that's, that's going to cause cataclysms, disasters, natural events of that sort, I guess we'll see on December 22nd if we're still around. But by and large, like I said, it's a rumor that got started and uh, I, I kind of wanted to spell that. But on a similar theme, a lot of people um, have asked me and, and heard some of our earlier shows on, on topics like the Bible. Um, how, do you, how do you bridge the interface between science and religion? And I want to give a couple of examples of that because I think it's related again to this topic of sensationalism and sort of cherry picking information from science to, to fit whatever objectives one has or whatever religious beliefs one has. And, and I think one of the great stories about this, and, and, and this is a, a project that, um, and this a project comes from a project that I did when I was a graduate student a long, long time ago, many years ago. And it has to do with uh, with how, uh, how how do you demonstrate science to religionists or folks who really are sort of housed in a religious perspective? And of course, I have no problem with people having their own faith or beliefs. Um, certainly, um, everybody's entitled to that. And 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 I, some of some of some of the people I respect more than anyone else in the world believe because they believe. And uh, if you throw out scientific fact in some cases, you never get past that gap that at some, po- some point a person says, I just believe in it. But there is a scientific basis for a lot of these stories. And there's a scientific basis for a lot of the Bible. I won't get crazily into this at this point because we've done a couple of shows on it. But one, uh, one of the examples that, that I, I pick out very frequently is this idea of Noah's Ark and the Flood. And um, Noah's Ark, um, and I don't know if they're still doing this because I don't follow these folks who do it, but there are folks who run around the world looking for this thing. And a lot of them said they have found it on uh, Mount Ararat in Turkey and that pieces of wood were found and they seem to think that that wood conforms to uh, the position of Noah's Ark. And the reason that they say that this is Noah's Ark is because the fragments of this boat were found at this relatively high elevation. And, of course, there are many, many reasons for these sorts of things to happen. But one of the best ones, I think, is, is, is the reality check. And the reality check uh, is a situation that I encountered um, on an Iraqi project many, many years ago. And <clears throat> it had a lot to, to do with the Noah story because the Noah story, um, in addition to being found in the Old Testament, is also part of the mythology of the Mesopotamian tradition, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. 
and it goes back to approximately the same point in time from the same general neighborhood. It is the Middle East, after all. And one of the items that I looked at it at, at when, when, with respect to all of this is how, where is it grounded? Where is Noah's Ark grounded? Where is the story of the Great Flood grounded? Well, one of my advisors and, and one of my professors in, in the University of Chicago when I was there um, was a specialist in Mesopotamian archaeology. And I, when I was training, I was a, a specialist in geoarchaeology or uh, trying to bridge the gap between archaeology and the earth sciences because when things get buried, you have to look at the dirt itself and the dirt tells a story. And those of you who have listened to the program, even not so religiously, know that I talk about the dirt a lot. And when I was in school and, and I had a contact with this particular advisor, um, he said, look, I know you're doing dirt. I would like you to look at these deposits in the vicinity of some major Mesopotamian tells. Um, and Mesopotamian tells are like huge mounds, very much like the pyramids of um, of Mesoamerica, of Mexico, like we were talking about before, not associated with the Mayans and with with their neighbors to the west. Um, and what he said was, I'd like you to look at the deposits of these very, very earliest city-states, and these, which is what these tells mean. They're, it's like city-states, and they're like these huge mounds, and they represent the debris of human habitation over many tens, hundreds, and sometimes thousands of years, and they're all over the Middle East, and, and that's where a lot of the biblical stories got started. Well, he said, look, we're looking at environmental change, and we're trying to look at environmental change in a very systematic fashion. And one of the things we want to look at is we want to look at what the climates and environments were like when these older tells and the tells that, that are so strongly featured in Bible stories, what did it look like? Well, one of the unique elements that we were able to look at at this time was the series of natural deposits or flood sands, if you will, that accumulated on the margins of these very, very spectacular tells. In other words, these tells were generally located on the banks of rivers. In Mesopotamia, that would be the Tigris and the Euphrates River. In Egypt, that would correspond to the Nile River. And uh, for that matter, in, in North America, that would correspond to the Mississippi River, which was sort of the center of the Cahokia culture. But you know, we talked about that somewhere else. But the point was, what can we tell from the deposits and the flood sands and the flood silts that flank these tells? Well, I was given, and I, I didn't do my field work in this area, but I was given a series of deposits to look at. And one of them had a very, very thick deposit of flood sands and flood silts. They were close to a meter high a meter thick, rather, and they were buried in between natural flood sands that flood on, a, as we talked about, a cyclical basis based on rainfall and discharge and and uh, climatic episodes. And all of a sudden, you see this one meter thick accumulation of sands. And you're going, 
this is something unprecedented. There's nothing like it in the entire sequence that you're able to, of flood sands, because there are separate layers. So there are layers that are about a centimeter thick, which would be half an inch thick or something like that. And on and on, half an inch, half an inch, half an inch, quarter of an inch, uh, three quarters of an inch, whatever you want to call it. And then all of a sudden it's like three feet. And when there's no separation within that three foot, uh, thick accumulation of dirt, that's an enormous flood event. That's like a hurricane flood event. So that if you look at what Hurricane Sandy did a few weeks ago, you will find many, many years from now in some drainages or some rivers upstream of New York City or Philadelphia or areas like that, you will find a very thick deposit of flood sands. And that deposit represents an episodic event, a single event that was very, very major and caused probably serious damage. And when you talk about the Noah story, you, you're looking at that same time frame because we could, we could date that one meter thick or three foot thick horizon or accumulation of sands in the normal sequence of sands from Mesopotamia that go back five, six, seven thousand years ago. And this one falls in there. It's sandwiched between them. So this is of a biblical age. So clearly there would have been a massive rain event that was recorded four, five, or six thousand years ago. I don't remember how how long how how we dated this one. I don't remember how what what, what the date came out to, but I think it was something like uh, five and a half, six thousand years ago, because we we dated through the radiocarbon method, and that's what this represents. So this represents a cataclysmic flood event. The people who were who authored the Bible, the people who wrote the Bible, were living at about this time. Some of them. And if they weren't living uh, at, at that time, they had an oral tradition from their ancestors who told them this story because this story was true. There was a cataclysmic flood event. Science tells us there, there was a cataclysmic flood event at about the time when the biblical narratives tell us that the, that the world was created. So all of this stuff really fits very well. And... The simple route, I would say, I propose, is that you believe the story. You know, you believe that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and all life died and the world, the people, people were killed, everybody went extinct and the Bible moves from there. I mean, that's, uh, Noah's Ark is like the second major chapter in the Old Testament and, and everything moves from there. Well, the fact of the matter is that clearly as these city states were growing, um, and, and even in possibly when they were in their infants, infant stages, there were cataclysmic events that changed the course of human history. And they changed the human, human course of human history in the cradle of civilization. And, um, as a result of all of that, um, these events were obviously recorded or documented by the people who survived them. And those people passed on that information to their progeny and to their kids and on and on and on. And as I said, the game of telephone is, is really a powerful vehicle for filtering this information. And so somewhere, you know, the Bible would probably be one of these products. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I will be called all sorts of names from, from, uh, strict biblical interpreters. 
you know, heinous, if you will, blasphemous. But basically what I'm saying is that the story of this great flood got translated into the story of Noah's Ark. We know that it's grounded in reality. We know that there were cataclysmic events. But for that to expand and explode into a story of, uh, you know, the world came to an end, that's kind of a stretch. And that's how the game of telephone works. When you tell, you know, your friends and, and all of a sudden the message comes out and, and that's how the world ended. And so that's how the great cycle of the Maya um, becomes uh, gospel. And that's why we uh, we have... We have two days left, et cetera, et cetera. That's how these stories get started. Um, there's a very logical explanation to this. Uh, you know, there are major phenomena and major events that, that are not explain, ex- explicable, but that I would propose is because science hasn't gotten there yet. And when we come back, I'll talk about some of the issues that we need to talk about um, with respect to science that are affecting our everyday life and, and, and that are going to fashion our future. We'll be back in a few, minute, few minutes after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. If you're joining us late or if you're uh, interested in where we're going with this theme on uh, projections of cataclysmic events and 
what archaeology has to do with prophecy and uh, centered in this particular case on the potential ramifications of 21 December 2012, where according to some sensationalists who have taken it upon themselves to interpret the images and the projections of the Mayan calendar, the world will end. So we got two days and uh, I spent most of this hour trying to debunk some of these myths and to try try to explain what the scientific foundation for um, the calendar is and why it is so disconnected from the interpretation that a lot of popularizers um, have projected onto it. And I have to say that from my own perspective, um, one of the more guilty parties in allowing these kind of wild interpretations and fanciful uh, projections, how, one of the reasons, one of the guilty parties that, that is responsible for the dissemination of this bad information is our profession, my profession. Archaeologists are notoriously bad at communicating. I mean, we have the ability to make an incredibly interesting story get very boring. And that's because science is boring in many cases. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of detailed work. It, uh, the idea that, uh, that you get from a lot of the popular movies, Indiana Jones, of course, which is, of course, how we started this program, that you just sort of go out there and uncover stuff on the first day out in the field. That, that's nonsense. That doesn't happen. And yes, major finds do get made, but the person who will make that major find has probably spent the first 10, 20 years of his professional uh, career looking or finding things that are useful and important and contribute to the knowledge base, but are not the, the tomb of Tutankhamun, and they are not uh, Noah's Ark, as we talked about before, and they are not the Ark of the Covenant, as, as, as you had seen in, in, in the Harrison Ford field, but, film. But one of the problems that we do have in this profession, and, and one of the ills that I'm trying to cure with this show in my own uh, small, small way, um, is that we archaeologists have to be better at communicating. And one of the reasons we have to do that is because this is a very, very likable field. And if the dryness is peeled away and if it's peppered with a little pepper or hot sauce, if you will, um, you you get something and, and people listen and, and people are naturally curious and they do, will want to know if there is in fact a logical explanation for these things that seem otherworldly and there is and what I've tried to do in this program is try to give you some examples of that and, 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 and how the complexities of uh, natural phenomena get interwoven into contemporary culture and how that has good and bad sides. Uh, one of the items that I think archaeologists are going to be increasingly engaged in in the future is going to be um, this entire concept of uh, what is happening with global warming. Where are we going with this? And uh, the archaeologists at this point, archaeologists at this point in time are always working with science, scientists from other discipline, and, and, and I am uh, trained in a cross-disciplinary field in geoarchaeology, and so um, one of the things that we're looking at is how do we spread the 
word of of global warming in a sensitive and scientifically justifiable sense when there are many people in this country and elsewhere although this country has a lot of them who really doubt this i mean and and and, and you know we had years ago we had a, a number of scientists who actually agreed with that position that there is no global warming and that all of this is 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 simply a, a function of of natural developments, and they are to some degree right. The past ten thousand years are an interglacial period, according to anybody who knows anything about science. We are in an interglacial period. What does that mean? Well, there's a glacial period when climates are colder, especially in northern latitudes, and there's an interglacial period when climates are warmer because the the glaciers have melted. So. Uh, the simplistic explanation is that we're in an interglacial anyway. Climates are warming. And the answer is, yeah, that's true. Climates, there is global warming on a natural scale. There's no question about it. We're in an interglacial. However, we are accelerating the effects of that inter- interglacial uh, by producing unbelievable amounts of greenhouse gases, and what we have, what we say to these traditional scientists, and there are fewer and fewer of them now, um, who said, "Listen, we're in an interglacial. What's the big deal?" The fact of the matter is that none of the previously documented interglacials had this kind of a spike in global temperature increase. This just didn't happen. There wasn't this type of huge flooding, the hurricanes, um, on this level in, inter- other, in previous interglacials. And we know that because those records are stored in a variety of different time capsules. One of them is the, the Greenland ice core, which uh, is, is a little complicated to get into at this point now that I don't have very much time left. But we do have time capsules for interglacials that tell us, here's the range of variability in temperature that the interglacials basically documenting we got a range here it doesn't change that much but with the infusion of greenhouse gases they will spike by a factor of three four and even more so that yes sea levels rise during an interglacial that's true and you can expect more coastal flooding that's true but not of the type that we're seeing right now that is above and beyond what can be expected and that has not anything to do with the fact that sea level is incrementally rising. Sea level is monumentally, exponentially rising. And when that happens, that can only be a function of of these types of cataclysmic events that are related to uh, the infusion of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And when that's measurable. All of this is measurable. And, and, and the scientific data is almost incontrovertible that... The global warming sort of naturally kicked in because we're in interglacial, but but greenhouse ga- gases act as a catalyst to make it almost unmanageable. And if you look at at the archaeological record, it tells you how people adjusted to interglacials. When we talk about cavemen, uh, cavemen actually are people who survived during glacial episodes. The traditional um, infusion. Of, of information and, and, and a careful analysis of, of what cavemen are in, in, in reality versus what, the, again, what popular culture projects is cavemen, uh, basically live during glacial period, but that's another story for another time. 
in the interim, I, I hope uh, I've made some points uh, that will sort of calm your nerves about uh, 21 December 2012. And so I hopefully will see you the next time. And if we all disappear, then I was wrong. And all I could say is that there is, if, if there is no show next week, then everything I've told you doesn't mean a thing. And, uh, it was nice knowing you and hopefully we'll see you next time. But if not, it's been a great life. Again, thank you so much. See you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.